And Jesus just starts telling them stories. And he tells some of his most famous stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And those were kind of angled more towards the Pharisees and the the tax collectors and sinners. And then in chapter 16, he's still with this group, but we're told that he turns to his disciples. So he tells a story about this father who shows extravagant riches, pours it out on his son, wayward son who comes home. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, I've got a story for you now. And the story begins with a rich man who discovers that his manager, his accountant has been squandering his wealth. And so the rich man calls his manager in, lets him know he's going to be fired, and says, I want you to bring a record of all of my accounts. Bring me the ledger. Now, the manager, he realizes he's in trouble. He's losing his job. And he's old. He's too old and too weak to dig. He's too proud to beg. And there wasn't an unemployment or any kind of safety net in that day. And so this manager knows if he doesn't do something and do something quickly, like he's going to be in a lot of trouble. He's going to be out on the street. And so we read in verse 5 that this manager called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. So you get the sense of urgency. He, he goes to the guy, sit down quickly, let's talk. How much are you in the hole with my master? 800 gallons of olive oil. That is a lot of olive oil. <laughs> That's an, it's an absurd amount of olive oil. I don't know what he's doing with it all, but he has 800 gallons of it. And the manager says, listen, between you and me, I'm going to put 400 here, you put 400 there. This was the equivalent uh, of about three years' salary for the average worker that he just kind of cut off the bill. He's like, you know what? Let's just cut it in half, dollars $100, $150,000 in today's terms. Then we're told in verse 7 that he asked the second, and how much do you owe? This man said, 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, 1,000 bushels of wheat... It's kind of hard to do the measurement, but it's probably like 60,000 pounds of wheat. And so this, this rich man is obviously very, very rich, uh, and, and he's doing really, really well. And so this guy comes and he says, hey, instead of uh, 10 bushels, let's, or uh, 1,000 bushels, let's make it 800. Let's give you a 20% discount, which that discount was equivalent to probably like two years' wages. Now, the way Jesus tells the story, I think we're, we're meant to assume that this manager just keeps going down the ledger one by one, next person, next person, and he just starts cutting deal after deal after deal. And the reason he's slashing these debts is so that when he's out on the street, he has some friends he can call. <laughs> you know, he's out in the street, he gets kicked you know, loses his job, gets kicked out of his house. He's in a lot of trouble. He can call up Mr. Olive Oil and say, hey, remember when I saved you a hundred grand? Can I sleep on your couch for a few weeks? And the guy's probably going to say yes. And so he's trying to make some friends with, with the, the little bit of time he has. Uh, and the rich man eventually hears how this manager has been going and manipulating the accounts. And what you would expect 
in a Bible story about a dishonest guy, what you would expect is that the rich man found out what the manager did, and he said, you know, I'm going to throw the book at you. I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to throw you to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because of your dishonesty. But instead, (laughs) we're told in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's where the parable gets really difficult because this guy is shady. Like he's shady as all get out. And Jesus, it seems like he's saying, hey, be more like this guy. Now, the church throughout the ages, they've tried to sanitize this parable to make it more palatable, like just easier on us. And so some people say that what the manager was doing was he was taking out his cut with people and it just, so like his cut, I guess, was 400 gallons of the 800 gallons of olive oil. That just doesn't add up. There's no way that's his cut. If that was his cut, he would have plenty of money to buy a beachside home on the Sea of Galilee. So he, he's not just cutting it, taking out his cut. So others say, well, it's the interest, but the math doesn't add up if it's, if it's the interest. It's like 50% on olive oil, 20% on wheat. This, it's crazy interest, and it just it doesn't add up. But I think all of it is because people are just uncomfortable with the story. They're uncomfortable with Jesus telling the story of a guy who is kind of sleazy and then saying, hey, be more like that guy. And you can imagine Jesus is there and there's the the sinners and tax collectors and they're like, I know a guy like that. You got the Pharisees who are like salivating as Jesus is telling the story. Boom, we've got him. And you've got the disciples wondering what in the world? What are we supposed to do with this? What, what does this mean? What's the lesson, Jesus? And understand the lesson, you have, to, you have to pay close attention because the text doesn't say that the master commended the shrewd manager for his dishonesty. The text says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, shrewd isn't a word we use a whole lot, but it's a word that means to be creative, to to be clever, to be resourceful, forward thinking, to take initiative. It it means to hustle, like just, just to get it done. And so the master looks at this guy, he commends him because this man, this, this manager, he got a glimpse into his future and he saw what was coming for him and he took quick and decisive action. He didn't just sit around. He knew he was going to lose his job. He knew he was in trouble. He knew a day of reckoning was coming. And with that future in mind, he began to hustle and scheme to prepare for that day. Verse 8, Jesus unfolds the parable for us a little bit more. The second half of verse 8, when Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I think here's what Jesus is saying to us. Here's what he's getting at. If someone accidentally CC'd you on a company email tomorrow, and in that email, there was a list of names of people who were going to be let go at the end of this month, and you saw your name on the list, 
I think it's safe to say you wouldn't go on with life as usual, would you? No, I mean, you, you would start making some phone calls. Uh, maybe you take the name of the guy who sent the email, see if you get him fired so you could get your job back. You'd set up appointments. You'd go over your finances, start combing through, what can we cut? We can cut this, we can cut this. You'd start tightening your belt, and you'd be foolish not to, right? If you knew you were going to lose your job in a month, it would be absolutely foolish for you to not do something to prepare, for you to not take quick, decisive action to prepare for it. Jesus is saying, if, if we could know our future, it would radically shape how we live in the present. If we know what's coming, it should shape what we're doing right now. And what Jesus is saying is, I've told you what's coming. You can know what's coming. The day is coming, and it's not too far off from now that every single one of us, we're not just going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose everything we love on this earth. All of our possessions, our homes, our cars, everything down to the beat and our heart and the breath and our lungs. And Jesus is saying, in the world, if you're going to lose your job, you take quick and decisive action because you see this future coming and you want to prepare for it. And he says, but my people, for some reason, even though they know this day is coming, they don't show that kind of creativity, that kind of urgency, that kind of shrewdness and preparing for that day of judgment, that day of reckoning. What Jesus is saying here is my children... They would live so differently if they really remembered and kept before them on a regular basis how this whole thing ends. We wouldn't just keep going through the motions. We'd make some changes. You know, even though I wasn't preaching the last few weeks, I was here, and uh, I thought both Jim and Jonathan, they did phenomenal jobs. Uh, and preaching, and I noticed something this, this time around in the parables that I've never noticed before, which is that in every one of the parables, every one of Jesus's parables about money, he also speaks about judgment. Every one of his parables about money, Jesus also talks about a day of reckoning. So the parable of the talents, the master is returning and he's saying, you're going to have to give an account. The rich fool, it's you fool. You're going to die tonight. There's judgment. The rich man and Lazarus, which comes later in chapter 16 of Luke, that tells us judgment and then kind of post-judgment, judgment and torment of what, what happens to the rich man after he's judged. And then here, there's judgment. The master, Jesus is saying, you're not living ready. He's always connecting how we think about money with the reality that there's a day where every single one of us is going to stand before him and give an account for our lives. Now, there's two ways you can hear Jesus' teachings about judgment and about reckoning. One way is to say to him, that's very negative, Jesus. Don't you know, we don't talk about judgment anymore. We're too sophisticated for that. All that talk about judgment, it just makes people feel bad and you don't want to feel bad. And so one way to hear it is to ignore it or reject it or plug your ears and say, 
No, 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 I'm not buying it. That's offensive to me. But there's another way of hearing. And the other way of hearing Jesus' teaching on judgment begins by acknowledging that maybe Jesus knows some things that we don't know. That maybe Jesus sees some things more clearly than we do. Maybe he who makes known the end from the beginning has a better perspective on life than we do. He has a better vantage point. And maybe, just maybe, the reason Jesus talks so much about judgment and about when he talks about money, it's not because he wants to indict us or just to indict us or just to scare us or, or to make us feel bad. I think that's oftentimes we read that and we're like, that makes me feel bad. Listen, Jesus' goal when he teaches, it isn't just to make people feel bad. Like that wasn't his goal. He didn't come to be this killjoy. Oh, you guys are having a good life. Let me see how I can make you feel miserable all the time. That's not what he's about. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and life to the, the full, life in abundance, life overflowing the brim with joy and with peace and with confidence and with hope. Like, I want you to experience life that's so much greater than, than you conceive life to be. And so Jesus, in saying this, he's not, he's not just saying it to indict us. He doesn't just give us this warning about judgment coming to make us feel bad. He says it because he, he wants to invite us into a different way of life and a better way of life. He wants to invite us into a life where we handle our wealth and our money wisely and we handle it in a way that brings life rather than it steals it. You know, I think that's another reason why preaching on money sometimes gets weird because a lot of us just, we have, we have a lot of mixed emotions about money. We love money money's powerful. We hate money because we don't tend to have enough of it. We stress over money. We're looking at our bank accounts all the time. It's this, it's this thing that's in our life always. It's always running in the back of our minds. And we're worried and we're stressed. But for some reason, when we come to what Jesus says about it, a lot of times we reject and we say, I got it. When the reality is most of us don't have it. Like we worry, we stress. And Jesus is saying, listen to me. I've got a better way. And there are three things that Jesus lays out here in chapter 16, kind of three, three characteristics of this better way, three, three different ways to, to use your money so that it brings life rather than it steals life, three ways to, to use your money so that you can actually prepare for the day of judgment that's coming. And the first thing Jesus says is, you need to, number one, leverage your wealth. Verse 9 of chapter 16, it's another one of these just kind of confusing verses. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth, and the actual translation of that is unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon, or it could be untrue wealth, to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, and again, the more literal translation there, when it is gone, it's actually when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I mean, that's a confusing verse when you first read it, right? Is he saying you can buy your way into heaven or you can buy your friend's way into heaven? What, what's he saying here? Well, you got to understand what he's saying about wealth to understand the, the big point. What he's saying about what we consider wealth, and he calls it unrighteous or untrue, 
when he talks about it failing, Jesus, he's trying to remind us that everything on this earth is fading and it's wearing down. Everything on this earth, be it your house, your car, your stuff, like it's fading and wearing down and everything on this earth one day is going to end up in the dirt. Call it the landfill principle. Everything we love one day is going to end up in the dirt. Now, you know, we might recycle it four or five times and it it becomes different things for a few decades or maybe even a couple of centuries. But every single thing that we love, one day it's going to fail. It's going to be gone. And so if you like fancy instruments, that's great. Play your fancy instrument. But remember, one day it's going to end up in the dirt. If you buy a vacation home by the beach, awesome. But remember, eventually that home is going to collapse, it's going to be torn down, or it's going to be washed away by the sea. I mean, what Jesus is trying to help us see is that, in a sense, there's no real good investment on this earth because nothing on this earth lasts. I mean, if, if you put all of your money in gold and put it under the Swiss Alps, eventually even the Alps are going to be worn down to pebbles. Like nothing, nothing's going to last. Now, of course, we're going to die before all that stuff happens. But what he's saying is you, what, what, what we spend so much of our life consumed with, what we spend so much of our life chasing, it's going to end up in the dirt. He's saying, don't don't give the best of who you are. Don't give all of who you are to stuff that's going to end up in dirt. Now, you have to understand that to understand the call. Because what Jesus is saying in this text, the invitation, is that while, while most of the investments are bad, there is a really good investment. That we, there is a way we can take this stuff, all this stuff that's perishable, all the stuff that's going to end up in the dirt, we can take it and we can invest it into something that will gain eternal dividends. Like we can transform our worldly wealth, put it through a process, and then it will bear interest for eternity. Well, what lasts for eternity? It's not stuff. It's not buildings. It's not cultures. It's not nations. What lasts for eternity is people. People with souls. And what Jesus is saying in this text is he's saying, invest what you have into people. Lost people, hurting people, lonely people, depressed people. Leverage what you have to bless, to support, to help, to encourage, to lift up others. Saying, make friends by means of your untrue failing wealth, the wealth that's not really true wealth, make friends with it so that when it fails, people will know Jesus because of how you used it. And people will be able to welcome you in when you enter into his kingdom fully and finally. What I struggle with in this personally, because it's just a big call, but also what I love about this is this call, Jesus isn't just saying give to the poor, give to the church. 
Like he's not saying you need to care for the poor. He does say that. I think it's in chapter 10 or 11 of Luke where he says you need to give to the poor. And he does encourage you to give and support his mission. But what he's calling us to here, he's not saying, hey, just just give 10% or make sure that you don't forget the poor. What he's saying here is I want you to use every single thing you have and I want you to leverage it for the sake of other people. Like, I want you to live such radically generous lives that when people come across your path, they're taken back by it. That you have a reputation. And people, you know that guy? Yeah, I do know him. He just blesses people. Have you ever noticed that? Money, sure. Time, energy, skill, ability, offer to lend a hand. That, that gal, she just gives. She, she has this lifestyle of generosity. Jesus is saying that's, it's not only the better way, it's also the better investment. Because when you pour what you have into people, people last forever. So number one, leverage your wealth. Number two, start with what you have. You might say, I don't have a whole lot, or I don't have anything, or I'm broke. And it's, it's as if Jesus anticipates this response. And I would say, I understand that a lot of you are struggling financially, but Jesus' disciples, they left their nets. They had nothing. And so Jesus is telling this. He's not tell, he didn't call all of the rich men of Jerusalem to a morning breakfast to say, hey, let's sit down and talk about some stuff. He's sitting here with fishermen who left their nets behind, guys who are broke. And he lays this call out for them. And it's like he anticipates the response because in verse 10, he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. What Jesus is saying here is if you make $1,000 a month and you're not leveraging your money well, when you make $10,000 a month, that's not going to change. Like you are who you are. If you're not generous when you're broke, you're not going to be generous when you're wealthy. One of the consistent teachings of Jesus in the scriptures is you can be generous no matter what you have. I mean, that's the story of the widow's might. And I think we live in a culture where generosity, that's something for rich people. And Jesus says, no, generosity is something for my people. If you're going to be my follower, I want you to live your life kind of holding the things of this earth loosely, eager to help, eager to bless. Jesus goes on. And these next couple of verses, they're, they're interesting. And I'll be up front. I don't quite know exactly what they mean, but they're really interesting. So I just want to, I want to work with them, uh, work with you with them for just a minute. Because he says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, unrighteous wealth, untrue wealth, the stuff, all the stuff that's going to end up in the dirt. He says, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, there is a warning here, but there's also something really fascinating and, and kind of amazing. Jesus is saying all this stuff here, it's like paper plates. Now, if you're not faithful with the paper plates, I'm never going to entrust the china to you. But if you are faithful with it, I'm going to bring, out, bring it all out. He says, all this stuff, it's untrue wealth. He says, if you're faithful with this, though, I'm going to actually give you 
true wealth. And I don't even know what that means. That's what I mean. I, I can't envision what he's saying here, but I'm sure it's wonderful. He says, you haven't been faithful with the property I have entrusted to you. Who's, it, who's ever going to give you property of your own? That while we're going to lose everything that, that we accumulate in this life, Jesus is saying, for my people, my followers, I actually have property that I'm going to give them that will last forever. It's fascinating. And I think what he's getting at here is if you don't, you don't have uh, a spirit of generosity about you when you're broke, you can't be trusted when you don't have anything. It seems like what he's saying is, well, I don't want to trust you with the really valuable stuff. If you can't be faithful with what's going to end up in the dirt, why would I give you stuff that's going to last forever? I told you guys this is a hard text. I mean, Jesus is turning the screws on us. But I think there are some practical ways forward. Like, I think we can hear this and, and say, well, what does that mean? And I, the question I want to put before you is, what would it look like for you to start with what you have? Like, what would it look like for you to start with what you have? And so for some of you, maybe it's carving out $20 a month. You know, if you're a teenager here, you, don't, you couldn't do that, but maybe it's two bucks a month. For some of you, you could carve out $200 a month or more. What if you just, if you have a budget, you actually wrote a line in the budget and call it the blessing line. And it was every month we're just going to set aside 20 bucks and then we're going to see what comes our way. Maybe we encounter someone in need. Maybe we're talking with someone at work. Maybe there's someone in our neighborhood who has something happen. But you, and if you're married, you sit down with your spouse and you say, what would it look like for us? Just 20 bucks. It's not that much money. Every month, we're just going to put $20 aside and we're going to ask, how can we bless people with this? Man, I promise you, if you do that, I won't promise you, but I will say, if you do that, I think what you'll find is it's kind of addictive. I mean, Jesus was the one who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think what you'll find is when you, you're able to take some of what God's entrusted to you to help other people, it, it kind of feels good, it kind of feels awesome. Then you might actually start doing more of it and more of it. I think when you do it, you really learn what Jesus is saying when he says it's better to give than to receive. And, and some of you, I know you're already there. Some of you guys, you live radically generous lives. And I would say, what's it look like to go bigger? Or maybe you're saying, I've gone as big as I can go. Well, what's it look like for you to stay faithful? The big point is you got to start with what you have. And one of the, the big overarching teachings in the New Testament, Jesus says about his followers is they're people who are going to be generous. And so if there's not a generous spirit in you, if you're clinging to everything really, really tightly, I think that calls for examination. So leverage what, what you have. Start where you're at. And number three, and this is how you get there. You got to entrust yourself to a better master. Jesus says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus isn't saying here that you're not allowed 
to serve God in money. He's saying it's impossible. He's saying our hearts have the capacity for only one dominating love, one dominating affection, one dominating passion. We, we can only point our life in one direction. You can't point your life in two directions. You can only pursue one thing ultimately. And whatever that thing is, whatever that passion is, it will override everything else. You'll shape your life in pursuit of it. And in turn, it'll shape you. It'll shape your thinking, your decision-making, your schedule, your spending. It will rule you. And the word Jesus is giving is not for everyone. There's lots of different things that we can pursue. But for most of us, like being successful, making money, providing, climbing the ladder, like that's the thing that, that is most in competition with God to be the master of our life, the thing that rules us and shapes us. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't work hard. doesn't mean we don't have ambition. It just means we know who our master is. You, know, you, you can't serve two masters. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that <laughs> there will be opportunities that will come before you that if you're serving money, like if that's what you're really after, you're going to say yes to. But if you're serving God, you're going to say no to. Like there are going to be times you have opportunities where if money is the thing you're after, you say yes. If God is the master of your heart, you say no. I've had it happen to me, and I'm a pastor. Like we don't have money. We don't, we're not in the business world. We're not investing money. So if it's happened to me, I know it's happened to you guys. Conversely, there will be opportunities that come before you that if you're serving God— you'll say, I need to step into that. Whereas if you were serving money, you would say, I don't need to step into that. There'll come times where God's saying, I want you to open your hands to this. And if you're serving him, you'll say, okay. And if you're not, you'll say, no, why would I do that? I don't get a return on investment there. You have to pick a, you have to pick a master. And Jesus, he's the better master. Why is he the better master? Because any other master will destroy you in the end. That's why. You point your life in the direction of anything other than him, it will destroy you in the end. David Foster Wallace is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, he's deceased now. He put this better than I ever could. This commencement speech that he gave at Kenyon College, he said this, if you worship money and things, there where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That's true. Like, we know this is true. And I feel like, and he actually says it in the speech, he says, we all know this. This has like been coded in every like parable and story and myth. It's the skeleton of everything. That, that if we, we pour our lives pursuing things that are temporal, that are going to end up in the dirt, we're probably going to be unhappy. There's no probably, but we are going to be unhappy. And some of you, you hear this quote and it strikes a chord because you're like, that explains it. 
That explains why I always feel stupid. That explains why I always feel ugly. That explains why I always feel like we don't have enough. Explains why I'm always thinking we need just a little bit more. Some of you, you're slaves to your job, to your pursuit of your dream life, to that lie of a little bit more, and you're frustrated, and you're disillusioned, and you're cynical, and you're weary. And maybe you hear all this and you sneer at it like the Pharisees did. I like how at the very end, the Pharisees hear all of this, which is actually a pretty clear argument that Jesus is making, and they just sneer because they loved money. But I think a lot of us in this room, we're not sneering. We're like, gosh, that's so true. I'm so tired. While every other master on this earth makes unceasing demands on you, every other master demands that you give your life in pursuit of it, Jesus is the one who gave his life for you. That's why he's the better master. Like everything, you want to be successful, give everything you have to get there. You want to be rich, give everything you have to become rich. You want to be beautiful, do everything you can. Eat all of the right food, do all of the right exercises, and maybe you'll get there. And maybe you need some surgeries too to hit your ideal of what beauty is. Give everything. I mean, we see this in the lives of celebrities over and over and over again. They demand, give it all in pursuit of me. Jesus is the one who says, no, I'm giving myself to you first. Like, I'm not demanding that you climb some mountain to me. I climb down the mountain to you. I'm asking you to die in order to earn my approval. I died so that I could give you my approval. I mean, the the hope of Christianity, the gospel, is that Jesus, he climbed on the cross to pay the debt that we couldn't pay because we're really just like this dishonest manager in some ways. Like the master, he can come to all of us and say, you've mismanaged my funds, everything that I've entrusted to you. You could come to every single one of us and say, I I gave you stuff to steward and you blew it. You're fired. You're kicked out. You're banished from my presence. But instead, Jesus comes and he says, I'll take the debt. I'll take the punishment so that you can be welcomed in and you can be reconciled to God. And when the day of judgment comes, you don't have to fear being cast out. I'm like, if your faith is in Christ and you are following Jesus, you don't have to fear a day of judgment. I think it should sober you up, stir a sense of urgency in you, but you don't have to live terrified of it. I mean, Paul longed for it. One point, Paul's like, well, to live is Christ, so if I live, I can keep serving Christ, which is great. To die is gain. Paul's like, I'm looking forward to judgment day. Not because he said, I've got it all figured out or I've lived the perfect life, but because Jesus lived the perfect life for him and for all of us. Now, because of that, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't make demands in our life. You know, Matthew 11, 28, 30, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone else just want rest for their souls? But then Jesus says this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now there's, there's rest, but there's still a yoke and there's still a burden, but it's, it's easy and light. There's, there's demands that Jesus is going to make on the lives of his followers, but the demands Jesus puts on your life, they won't crush you. They're not gonna grind you into the dirt. 
the commands he gives. Live a generous life, he's saying, that's what I did for you. And I just want you, because I've saved you, to be in this world and to be a force of my kingdom, a person of the light. I want you to live like I lived. He doesn't just give us the commands, he gives us the power. Because when you know that Jesus holds your life and your future, then and only then can you hold the things of this world loosely and say, all right, I've got a better treasure. Now, as we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate that reality that Christ's body was broken for us so that our body wouldn't have to be broken, that his blood was shed for us so that our blood wouldn't have to be shed. Communion reminds us that Jesus took our judgment. I mean, it's violent imagery in a sense, a broken body, shed blood, to remind us that the violence, Jesus took it for us, so we don't have to take it. We don't have to face it. Our hope and our faith and our trust and our security, it isn't on how well we do, it's on what he's done for us. And we forget this day in and day out. And that's why Jesus said, as often as you come together, take part in this. And so if you're here and you're a believer, communion is a time for you to be reminded of the grace and love of God. It's also to be remembered, <laughs> to be reminded that he gave everything to redeem you and he has put calls on your life. And what would it look like for you to just take another step in obedience towards him? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you entrust yourself to the one who took your debt. Let me pray.